Where we left off last time was basically the church in Jerusalem being persecuted. And when they were persecuted in the early church, it was much more than you and I are probably persecuted today. We get bosses that get mad at us. We get laughed at because we have a bumper sticker on our truck or something. They got persecuted by being kicked out of their city and becoming refugees. And persecution spread throughout all of Judea. As we've said so often, and it's a scriptural principle, although there was persecution, it never really hurt the church. In fact, the church grew most during times of persecution, then during times of peace. People become complacent when things go too well. And when there's times of peace, it's easy to let our guard down. And because of this persecution, people were scattered throughout not only Judea, but Samaria and further on. And God used that scattering, that persecution, to drive them into areas so that they could share the gospel in those areas, so that people who had never heard the message before had a chance to hear it. And so every time a persecution broke out in a town, they went to another town. They stayed there until persecution broke out. And they were forced out by the people of that town, and they went northward and then westward eventually into Rome. And the flow of the book of Acts is simply how the gospel gets from Jerusalem to Rome. That's the theme of Acts. Because Rome is the center of the world, and from Rome the gospel was able to get out from that time to out throughout all of the world up to this point. Because it was the center of the world. And we see a flow of that throughout the book of Acts. Although there was a persecution, we read in chapter 9 that there was a brief rest and a time of peace from that persecution. Over in verse 31, it says, Then all of the churches throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Because there was peace, the Christians had a freedom now to move around and to share a little more openly. You remember during the persecution, the people were scattered, but the apostles remained in Jerusalem. Now the apostles are experiencing the freedom to go out, and Peter is one of them. And so now we read in chapter 9 where Peter is not in Jerusalem anymore, but he goes toward the coast to edify, to strengthen the churches that are in that area. In verse 32 it says, It came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years, and he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. And then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. And we'll explain what that mean, name means in a minute. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room, and since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. And then Peter arose and went with them. 
When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all of the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out, and he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Now this takes faith. It's one thing to turn to people who are well, who are breathing and looking at you and tell them something, but to turn to a body, a corpse. And he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And then he gave her his hand, lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. So Peter moves from Jerusalem goes toward the coast to Joppa and Lydda, and the whole purpose of his trip was to encourage, to strengthen, not only to preach the gospel to the unsaved, but primarily to strengthen and edify the church. And I find that when somebody comes to another church, a visiting speaker, like when KP spoke last week, or we've had visiting speakers, or when I get to go out and share with other churches, how the people of that church appreciate it the encouragement. Imagine what it would be like to have a midweek Bible study with Peter teaching it. You live in Joppa and, well, we have a special guest tonight, someone we haven't seen for a while. It's Peter the Apostle. And he's going to come and give us a few tips on Christian living. Oh, that would be exciting. And so Peter's there teaching uh, these early disciples. Remember, Peter was the one who failed Jesus Christ who denied Jesus Christ three times. And what we just read is the testimony of a man who was used powerfully by God to heal and to raise from the dead, and in chapter 10, to lead the first Gentile to Jesus Christ. Peter was the one who said that he did not even know Jesus to the servant girl in the courtyard. Now, I bring that to your attention for a very important reason. Failure does not mean dishonorable discharge in God's army. If you blow it, God doesn't say, you had your chance, no more. James was right when he wrote his little epistle, and he said, we all stumble in many things. Boy, that's the truth. And I wish, although we want to uphold a standard of holiness and encourage one another to holiness. That we as Christians would be the first to cut other Christians a little slack and be the first to extend a hand of compassion and forgiveness, which often is lacking. And Peter, this failure, is now used mightily of God in healing and in raising people from the dead. You know, Satan has many schemes, and one of them is to persuade us, once we have failed to persuade us that we have ruined all of our chances for being used by the Lord again. That we will not have a fruitful ministry. He tries to keep us in that place of discouragement, doesn't he? He wants us to just lay around and say, well, I've blown it. I'm of no use to God. I'm not worthy to come back to him. I'm not worthy to get involved anymore and do his work. Jesus has an entirely different method. It's called restoration. 
He approaches a person and seeks to restore, not to beat down, not to point his finger and say, you creep. And Peter's a class A example. A person who denied his Lord, but then was used by his Lord. And we get in the Gospel of John his restoration. Remember the last chapter. Where Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. The most gracious command he ever gave to Peter. Because Peter blew it. And yet Jesus commissions him to feed his lambs. He entrusts his church to him. His sheep, his precious lambs, that which he prizes, that which he died for, here's my sheep, feed them. Now, if Jesus would have come to Peter and say, Peter, I love you, you are forgiven, but Peter, you will never be able to be in a position of leadership ever again. We would understand that because that's how we think. We'd say, yeah, that's right, never be the same, never be used again. Now, I do believe that when a person, especially a leader, sins, his repentance must be as notorious as his sin. Peter's was. And as soon as he came to the Lord in that repentance, there was that restoration. He didn't just leave in there. He said, I'm going to use you again. You feed my sheep. I share that because who of us haven't failed our Lord? Who of us would dare say, I'm a perfect Christian. I don't fail. I uphold the standard of holiness. Although we try and we serve the Lord with all of our hearts, we all stumble. We all fail. And if you make a step toward God, even though you have failed, God will make a step toward you. Draw near unto the Lord and He will draw near unto you. Oftentimes we just sit in that area of failure and we don't move on. It's not God's fault. We just got to turn to him and say, Lord, receive me back. And I bet he'll say the same thing to you. Feed my sheep. He'll restore you like he did to Peter. It's like one old saint said at one time. She said, I ain't what I ought to be. And I ain't what I'm going to be. But I sure ain't what I was. You are growing. You haven't arrived. And I haven't arrived. I have a long way to go. And every time I pick up this word, it's like a mirror. I see myself in it, and I see how far I have to grow yet. And at the same time, I see the encouragement of the Lord saying, Don't worry, I'll work with you. You're kind of rough. Rough timber, but I love challenges. So I will even work with you. You aren't what you were, but you aren't what you... You sure aren't... You ain't what you was. Put it that way. She said it the best. Now, the end of chapter 9 and chapter 10 really are one unit. You should see it as one unit because all of these things lead up to a a pinnacle, a climax, if you will, of Peter sharing the gospel with a man named Cornelius. He leaves Jerusalem, goes to the coast. One thing leads to another. And in chapter 10, he finds himself at Cornelius' house. He was sent for by his emissaries. And Cornelius is the first non-Jew the first Gentile to become a Christian. Outside of what was going on in Jerusalem, outside of what was going on with the Ethiopian eunuch, perhaps, who was a proselyte, it's the first Gentile who's a Roman who's converted to the Lord. And so you could look at this section by dividing it into three slices. And we're only going to cover two tonight. 
There's three miracles that are going on. There's the miracle of the healing of the body. Then there's the miracle of raising the young girl from the dead. And then there is the miracle of leading Cornelius to Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you a question. Which is the greatest miracle of all? Now see, some would answer that in a variety of ways. Some would say, oh, when your body is healed, that's the greatest miracle. And certainly it is a great miracle. We should never diminish that. And some of you who give testimony that your body is healed, boy, you know what it feels like. And you'd be the first to say, what a great miracle. The others would say, hey, I, I would say being raised from the dead tops anything. I mean, that's the icing on the cake. To be able to go up to a dead body and say, hey, get up, make your bed. Whoosh. Talk about getting people's attention. My personal observation from this passage and belief is that the greatest miracle is the saving of the soul. And that's not a cop-out. Because a lot of people would diminish the saving of the soul and focus on the healing of the body. And I wouldn't. And that's why I'm not interested in supporting organizations that seek only to feed children in certain countries without preaching the gospel to them. I don't think you should just preach the gospel and say, okay, be warmed and filled, bye-bye, starve. No, I think that you should show the compassion of Jesus Christ by healing and meeting the needs of the body, but far and above that is the soul. And it's the longest-lasting miracle, and it costs God the most. Jesus came to save people from their sins. And I think that's the greatest turning point. I think that's the greatest miracle. It produces greatest results. It gives the greatest glory to God. Now listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 14 to his followers. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me. Now, how many believe in Jesus Christ tonight? Yeah, probably all of us do. Most assuredly, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. When we read a passage like that, we either go, wow, or we go, hmm. Because that's quite a promise. Jesus not only healed the sick and raised the dead, but he said he could have the power to raise himself from the dead. I have the power to lay my life down. I have the power to take it again. He spoke to lakes when they were rough, and he calmed them down. He fed multitudes who were hungry, thousands at a time with food. He told Peter to go into the lake and get out a fish and there'd be money in it. Boy, I wish he would do that today a little more often. Such incredible miracles. And we look at that and say, does, does that mean that I will do greater things in the realm of physical miracles than these? How many of us could say that we match, let alone exceed, those things that Jesus does on a regular basis? I've tried. I've prayed for people and I've watched God heal people miraculously. I do not doubt nor do I deny the supernatural and the miraculous. Because I've seen it. I also have experienced physical healing. I've experienced the miraculous. But how many of us could say that we are doing greater physical miracles exceeding that which Jesus did today? 
Yes, the apostles did miracles in the New Testament. But would we even say that they matched? And if we did, did they exceed the miracles of Jesus Christ that He performed in the New Testament? I don't think so. Because although we see the raising from the dead in chapter 9, again, Jesus said, I have the power to lay my life down and raise it back up again. And no apostle would claim that. That's why I think when Jesus said, you will do greater works, he was primarily speaking of spiritual works, which include the miraculous, but it's not limited to that. And the emphasis is upon the saving of the soul. I think that's what Jesus had in mind on salvation. You've got to understand something. God doesn't see things like you and I view them. That's a fundamental thing you've got to realize. How we would view great, God might not share your definition of greatness. We in America think great is bigger and better, and certainly physical material. God would probably disagree. He said, my ways aren't your ways. And my thoughts are far above your thoughts. He doesn't even think in the same vein that you and I think. And we would say, greatness is the miraculous, healing, raising from the dead. That's the greatest. God would probably say, I disagree. In fact, I know he would. You say, how do you know he would? Because one time Jesus sent out his disciples on a crusade. And they came back from the crusade and they shared with him the results. And I'm going to read to you a passage in the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 10. They come back, and this is how it goes. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now keep something in mind. This is the first time they'd ever seen the power of God work through their own life. They never had classes on healing. They never, they, they didn't know what they were gonna, they didn't know what to expect. They go out there and they said, wow! You should have seen us. We were radical. We were red hot. And demons were subject to it. They were feeling, they were pumped. Jesus says, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. You're going, yeah, we, we experience that, Lord. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. There he compares the physical miraculous with a spiritual work, and he says the spiritual work is of far greater value than the physical miraculous and watching demons being subject to you in my name. The greatest miracle is that your names are written in the book of life. That's what you ought to rejoice in more than anything else. We should never minimize the miracle of salvation. It's the greatest thing. And perhaps we'll never fully realize it till we're standing face to face with Jesus Christ in heaven. And we realize it's over. I'm here for keeps. This is it. And we realize that it was just by believing in Jesus Christ and having Him wash away our sins that we stand there in His grace. That's the greatest miracle, I believe, of all. Greater works shall you do, Jesus said. Here we see Peter doing great works. A great work of healing somebody who's paralyzed. A greater work of raising a girl from the dead. But the greatest work of leading in chapter 10, Cornelius to the Lord. Now I want you to look at something in that vein for just a moment. 
Jesus promised greater works than these shall you do. After he made that promises, not long after, probably about a year after he made those promises to the disciples, Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people came forward to receive Christ, gave their lives to Jesus Christ, were converted, became a part of the church. A few weeks later, 5,000. And then more and more, and it kept growing until there were 20,000, 30,000 people in the early church. Far more in a few months period of time than Jesus had in three and a half years of ministry. Within 300 years, the early church Christians were really responsible for seeing all of the pagan temples closed in the Roman Empire. And the gospel spread like wildfire throughout the world. That's what I think he meant when he said, greater works than these shall you see. Now, Peter did some pretty awesome things here. In fact, as I look at them, I'm amazed at how much his faith has grown. As I study the gospels, I read this and I kind of feel proud of Peter. That's kind of neat, Peter. You're stepping out in real faith, much more than you've ever had before. Transformed by the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. He was just going full guns. But you know what? There's nothing special about Peter. Peter didn't have a glow about him or a halo that designated him from anyone else. He was just a fisherman. Still a crude kind of a person. Very simple, but God used him. And my point is, is that the greater works that God promised them... God wants to multiply through you and me. He wants to do His greater works through your life in these, what we consider to be the last days, the final chapters of history. And so the question is, you've got the promise. Are you really taking heart to that promise? Are you availing yourself? I don't mean striving, but just availing yourself. Lord, my goal and my desire is to spend the rest of my life serving You Is that your greatest desire? I don't care about doing my own thing or my own career, but I want to use it to serve you with. And I want you to be my sole aim. God doesn't want to be a spoke on your wheel, but the hub. A man came up to an evangelist who was preaching in town and said, I was saved 14 years ago at your crusade. The evangelist simply said, what have you been doing since? That probably took him off guard a little bit. You'd expect God to say, that's great, that's great. Here, I'll sign my autograph. Now, what have you been doing since? That's great. You're safe. Fourteen years. Boy, in fourteen years, what's been going on in your life? In verse 32, we see the great miracle of healing. And I want you to notice that this miracle, and it's pretty obvious, but let's bring it to our attention, was performed by the power of Jesus Christ. Peter knew that he did not have within himself what it took to heal a person. He didn't have the power to overcome this disease. And so it says, It came to pass as Peter went through parts of the country that he came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. By the way, if you've ever flown into Israel, you fly into Ben-Gurion Airport in the city of Lod. That's Lydda in the New Testament, a few miles from the coast. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who'd been bedridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said, Aeneas, now listen to how he puts this. Jesus the Christ, or the Messiah, heals you. Arise, make your bed. And then he arose immediately. He didn't say, I command you. 
Be healed. He just said, Jesus, the Christ, heals you. Make your bed. Boom, it was done. I love it. When Daniel stood before King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar said, Daniel, I hear that you have the power to interpret dreams. Daniel basically said, nah. All of the soothsayers, the magicians, all of these whack hammers you have working for yourself. None of them have been able to tell you your dream. They can't predict the future. But there's a God in heaven who knows the secrets of men and He'll reveal it. He didn't take the credit for Himself. God is revealing this to you, Nebuchadnezzar. And Peter doesn't take the credit. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. I love that. Jesus Christ heals you. Now, that phrase makes it perfectly clear that Jesus is still alive and well, even though they can't see Him. He's still working within His church. Remember the first verse of this book? As Luke is writing it, and he's writing it to Theophilus, he says, The former treatise or account that I wrote to you, O Theophilus, speaking of the Gospel of Luke, that former account of all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day that he was taken up into heaven. In other words, he's saying, I wrote to you in the Gospel of Luke the beginning of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of his teaching, the beginning of his miracles, all that he accomplished on earth. Now I'm writing to you what Jesus is continuing to do from heaven through his church. He is still working. The Acts of the Apostle is a poor term. It's not found in the New Testament. This should be called the Acts of Jesus Christ through the Apostles or the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. He is still working. Jesus Christ heals you. And what I like about this book is that if you would, and we'll get to it when we end the book, but the book ends abruptly. There's no smooth ending to it. It doesn't wind down. It just ends abruptly. It's because I believe there really is no ending to it. And I believe there are chapters being written about the acts of Jesus Christ through His church in different parts of the world and has been for 2,000 years and He's still writing. Because the acts go on and it didn't end with the early church. They're still working. We heard tonight some of you sharing how you came to the Lord, how you backslid and you've come back, how Jesus is healing you. And it's just a beautiful testimony that Jesus is alive and well on planet earth. He didn't take a 2,000-year vacation cruising up in heaven, laying on a lounge chair, waiting to come back. He's still alive. He's still working. And that encourages us to hear those kind of testimonies. Now, God wants to write chapters of us doing great things for Him. There's a little poem that I remember. It says, You are writing the Gospel. A chapter each day. By the things that you do and the words that you say. People hear what you say and they watch what you do. So what is the gospel according to you? You see, our lives are a book that people read no matter where we live or where we work, what we do. We're showing something to them. And people watch us. And hopefully God is unfolding more chapters like the book of Acts in our lives where we're just being used by God and God's using us to pray for one and lead another to Christ and be that salt and that light that He wanted us to. Now that's a great miracle. 
healing this person, bedridden for eight years. Perhaps he uh, contracted a, a palsy, a paralysis in, in his early midlife. He's felt helpless. He was bedridden. Now he's whole. And then the text moves on to a greater miracle, the raising from the dead in verse 36. At Joppa, which is right on the coast, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. Dorcas means gazelle. And you've got to understand that in those days, they would name, nickname people after animals that they liked. Not bad animal, not like dog face or something, but nice animals. And if somebody resembled the characteristics, probably she was very graceful and very gentle. And they thought, oh, it's like a gazelle, Dorcas. And so her name was Dorcas. I know it sounds weird to us today. Hey, Dorcas! But it was really a compliment in those days. Here's a little biographical sketch of this woman. She was full of good works. Oh, what a great testimony. And charitable deeds which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. And they washed her, which was Jewish custom. And they laid her up in an upper room. When a person died in those days, they would wash the body immediately, anoint it with spices, and she's sort of in, um, in, uh, in a state of, of lying in state, as they say, being able to be viewed. She's up in an upper room above the house. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the disciples heard that Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. They'd heard about the miracle of the healing. Hey, get Peter over here. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all of the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter put them all out. And he knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. This woman had the testimony of doing good deeds. She had the gift of sowing. You say, that's a spiritual gift? You betcha, it's called the gift of helps. I read this and I get blessed by passages like this because often people seek the glamorous stage gifts. They want to be seen. They seek the highest amount of visibility. When so much emphasis in the Scripture is placed on gifts such as this woman silently serving, sowing, helping people. These were people, these were widows. People who in those days did not have a governmental support system. There wasn't welfare. And you know how people took care of each other then? They formed a network. They formed, they formed friendships so that if you lacked financial help, your friends would learn about it. Lots of times people come to the church and say, we're looking for financial help. And I ask them the question, what kinship do you go to? Not that we'll withhold help from you, but what, what have you done to form meaningful relationships in the body of Christ? Do you belong to any small group at all? It doesn't have to be a kinship. There's a number of small groups and special interest groups that meet in the church. Are you involved? No. In the early church, you couldn't survive that way. You had to be networked together with other believers. And they were. And now she's dead. She was so loved and so needed. You know, it's hard to understand why people like Aeneas and Lydda, serving the Lord, righteous people, 
suffer and die? Ever ask that question? God, this person was important. Why did that person die, Lord? Why are you allowing people who love you to suffer? I don't understand. And I'll admit to you, I don't understand either. I've learned not to question as much, but I still don't understand. But we have to come to that conclusion. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We have to release them. They're gone. I don't know why, but isn't it interesting that even born-again, loving Christians who are filled with good works and ministry get sick and die? Nothing is said that she lacked faith or didn't make positive confession. She got sick and died. That's normal. And God can heal, and often He does heal, and hopefully we'll, we'll touch on a few of those things before we close, but she got sick and she died. Now, before we move on, I find it interesting that this miracle is so much like Jesus healing Jairus' daughter. Remember when Jesus was healing Jairus' daughter? He went in and he put everybody out who was mourning. He said, get out of here. But he just took Peter, James, and John, the inner quorum of the disciples. Peter remembered that. So Peter gets there and there's these mourners around. He goes, what do I do? Oh, yeah. Get out. <laughs> okay, I got that down. What's next now? So he got on his knees and he started praying, it says. And then he turned to the body and he said, what did he say? Tabitha, arise. What did Jesus say to the girl? In Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which means little maiden, get up. He says, Tabitha, arise. That's her name, Tabitha. Tabitha, arise. If he said it in Aramaic, and he probably spoke Aramaic, he would have said, Tabitha Kumi, which sounds very much like Talitha Kumi. And it's like he's modeling just the method of the miracle after Jesus. I think that's important. He learned from Jesus. And it's important that whatever we do, we take our cues from the Bible. We should be able to say, when somebody says, now why are you doing it that Well, because it says in the book of Acts, or Jesus said, or Paul, when he wrote about it, said this. At the day of Pentecost, when there was the speaking in tongues and the miraculous, people said, what is this? Peter said, this is that, which was spoken of by the prophet. And he quoted the book of Joel. He was able to point as a scriptural base to back up his practice. And Peter's modeling Jesus Christ here. I find it beautiful. Also, keep something in mind. <laughs> and again, it's pretty obvious, but it's for the sake of making this point. This solely was the power of God. It was solely the power of God. It was not the faith of the woman. It's pretty obvious because she's dead, and dead people don't have a whole lot of faith. <laughs> and you see, people make a big issue of, if you only had enough faith, you'd be healed. Well, she, she had none. Oh, but it was Peter's faith. Peter was the one who had the great faith. That's true, he did have great faith. To turn to a dead body and say, get up, that takes lots of faith. However, these people who run around the country saying, if you only had enough faith, my response to them is, hey, if we don't, let's use your faith if you got so much. We use Peter's faith here, he did it. So if you got that faith, and you obviously do, and I respect you for it, you go into these hospitals and start emptying them out. Instead of castigating Christians because they don't have enough faith, 
Well, use yours. Sounds like you got plenty. So let's see this stuff now. Go into the hospital, start emptying them out, and we'll bank on your faith. Because Peter obviously had the faith here to do it. And you know what? God will gift you and will use your gift according to the faith He gives you. You know that even the faith is a gift. And God gives us gifts according to the measure of faith that we have. And there are times when I get to pray for people, and as I pray for them, I just have great faith. I say, I know God's going to do something great here. There are other times when I don't have it. And I could say, oh, what's wrong with me? And I could hyperventilate and try to think the right kind of things. Okay, work it up, work it up. No, it's a gift. I say, God, if you want me to do something, then give me a gift of faith right now so I can see this thing through, because I'd like to be involved in it. But that's from God. We can never boast of ourselves. Well, it's because he had so much faith. That's why it happened. That can glorify the individual. Even faith is a gift. In 43, it closes out by saying, And so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon a tanner. I love it. I love it because a tanner was shunned by the Jewish community. A tanner touched the skins and the carcasses of unclean, ceremonially unclean animals. He'd wash them. It was a stinky process. He'd wash them there by the ocean. And Peter, as a Jew, shouldn't be hanging around in a tanner's house. But God is broadening his horizons a little bit to not be so narrow-minded. And it's going to take a couple chapters for him to really get past this. But at least he's opening himself up and he's willing to stay with a Gentile, let alone a tanner. God's doing a great work in Peter's heart. Now, before we close tonight, and we have just five minutes, a few words about healing. i got to confess something to you, because this whole subject here is about healing. I believe in healing, but I don't understand it. Every time I try to figure God out and what God should do, He doesn't do it my way. It's quite upsetting. I think I get it all figured out. Just the plan, the program, the formula. And God breaks out of my box. And I think, how dare you break out of my box? I had you all planned out. But God can do that because He's God. He's sovereign. He's the boss. He can do whatever He wants to do. I have watched people with great faith get sick. And I've watched people with no faith get healed. He breaks all the rules. I had a woman come into my office. She sat down with her husband. She said, I'm so grateful to have you pray for me. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that today when you pray for me, I'm going to be healed. And I shared with her, I said, boy, that's the same thing as the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. She knew that if she could touch the hem of Jesus' garment, she was healed. And that touching was a release, a trigger for her faith, and she was healed. And I believe that you will too. I'm going to pray for you right now. When we laid hands on her, we were sure that she was going to be healed. She never was. I've watched people heal. God heal, not people. I've watched God heal people with no faith. I had a woman come up to me a few months ago. She said, I was raised in a church that absolutely does not believe in healing. And when you on a communion night prayed for people to be healed, I thought, she said, but I was healed that night. She had absolutely no faith to be healed. 
I was healed when I had no faith. I separated a shoulder joint. My acromioclavicular joint right up here was separated. I had it x-rayed, and I was in a little uh, sling, and I wasn't to move it. I was prayed for, and I wouldn't, wouldn't believe in it. It was a simple prayer. Somebody prayed for me, and I was healed at that moment. So I believe in it, but it's, you can't always predict God. And God is sovereign in His methods. He does things differently each time. Remember even Jesus when He healed people? Sometimes He'd go up to them, He'd touch them and say, You're they'd, they'd be healed. Other times He'd speak to them from a distance. He'd say, Go, your daughter's made well. He wasn't even around. Another time, Jesus spat on the ground, made a mud ball out of it, and put it in somebody's eye. I mean, that's gross. <laughs> that's an interesting method of healing though, isn't it? What if we decide, hey, we're going to have a healing service. <laughs> How many of you would come up to be healed? I'm sure the man is thinking, what is he doing to me? He's making a spectacle out of me. You can't, you can't predict his methods. Each time it was totally different. I love that about Jesus. It's like, Jesus, look, you're God, you're sovereign. Here's my need. You do it any way you want to. Whether you want to do it in stages, immediately, in a strange kind of a way, whatever. I just present my need to you. The other thing I want to make mention about concerning the miraculous and about healing is that to God, it is not a big deal. We call it a miracle. God just says, it's nothing. I mean, I created the heavens and the earth just by speaking them into existence to heal a body. It's not like I have to work myself up to do it. It's very, it's a cinch. So we have to keep that perspective. And we should not look at certain diseases as out of control. We say, well, here's a cold. Certainly God will heal this. But this is the C word, cancer. Oh, God, I don't know about this one. To God, they're one and the same. It's not a big deal to God. It's a miracle to us, but it's, God works on a higher set of laws. A higher set of laws that to Him doesn't seem miraculous. An example I always like to use is the 747. Because I fly on them an awful lot. And every time I go to an airport, you ever see how big one of those planes are? Ever stand on the runway and look up at a 747? It's a monster. It can carry 500 people. It can carry 45,000 pounds of their baggage. And believe me, they, they pack a lot of stuff. People travel heavily these days and they use it all up. And it can take off and fly across the world. Now there's a law called gravity that says that huge, steel, heavy object will never leave the ground. That's a law of gravity. But there is another law that can supersede temporarily that law. The law of aerodynamics, propulsion. And you've got these big jet engines and they propel the plane forward and there's this dynamic displacement of air on the surface of the wings. And aerodynamics and propulsion can supersede that law just for a minute of gravity, and that thing takes off in the air. It's, and it, it's, it seems to me like a miracle every time it does. To scientists, it's like, oh, no, I can figure out on paper how it bubble. I look at it and go, wow, I'm in the air. Now, God has a higher set of laws. We look at somebody who's physically sick and go, oh, they're, it's their history. God has a higher set of laws He can enact, and it's not a big deal. And when we pray, we shouldn't bring our limitations into it, but we should concentrate on how great God is.
God, there's nothing too hard for you.